So since COVID happened, um, since the pandemic, you know, a lot of industries really struggled, right? But then there were also some that did super, super well because of it. And one of them was the houseplant industry. In 2021, it grew to become a $16 billion industry. And it exploded for obvious reasons. People were stuck at home. Um, what a nice time to start getting into plants. But the timing, it was kind of a, a good perfect storm. And the timing also aligned in uh, social media influencers becoming way more popular concerning the, uh, plant accounts. And so it was becoming super trendy. And at the same time, you know, the world shut down. Everybody had to stay at home or be outside. And so it exploded, $16 billion. That, that's two years. Uh, uh, these numbers are two years old. So I don't really know. It definitely had to get higher since then. And people talk a lot about the benefits of, of, of having plants in your house, like supposedly it makes the air cleaner. Uh, many say that it improves the mental health of the people who, who own them in their home, that if you have studies where there's apartments with none and apartments with a lot, that it seems to be beneficial to the owners. Uh, so there are a lot of really positive reasons for the growth of the industry. And it wasn't just because people were cooped up inside. Um, it, it seemed to be very beneficial in a lot of ways. But there's one huge negative reason why it exploded into a $16 billion industry, why it continues to grow, and it seems like it's never going to fail. You know why? Because they die all the time, and they need to be replaced. One study showed that anywhere between 35 to 15, 50, 50, half percent of the houseplants are killed by the owner. Last week, Pastor Bill, remember he talked about the Ten Commandments a little bit, thou shalt not murder? It's confession time. Who here is a plant murderer? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. We won't judge you. Okay, put them down. Who here is a plant serial killer? Raise them, raise them nice and high. We, we won't judge you. We won't judge you because it's actually really difficult to keep your plants alive. That's why they die all the time. It takes a lot of effort. Each plant is different. You have to juggle a lot of things and like research. It's not, you can't just buy it and bring it home. Oh, I'll just put it by the window. Some of them... They thrive in a certain temperature and not in others. Some of them need lots of water. Some, if you put too much water, you're going to kill it. Others, it's the acidity of the soil. I don't even know what that means, but like get a test kit. It's too, you know, use this soil, use this fertilizer. Some attract uh, uh, what are, uh, pests and you have to do the little spray. And others, if you did that, it would wreck it. You have to pay attention to so many things. Sunlight. Some, you got to have it during, you know, whatever facing window, the direction of your house, what neighbor. Others, if you give it too much sunlight, it's going to burn and it'll dry up and wither. You have to pay attention to a lot. So we're not judging, you know, you serial killers out there. It takes a lot of work to keep them healthy and to keep them thriving. You know what's so annoying to me? So annoying? These plants that are good for us, they clean the air, make the planet better, healthy and good hobby that's beneficial to the mental health and well-being of the owner takes so much stinking effort, but weeds take zero effort. Weeds suck. They ruin everything, but no effort. Weeds will grow on rocks. Like, there's, where's the soil? How did these roots end up here? They don't, it doesn't matter what the temperature is like outside, how much water or rainfall came or didn't come, what fertilizer, blah, 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 what pests they are. They just grow and they have a good time. It's so annoying how well they thrive. Every summer, I go out and I weed my whole yard. It takes me like three hours, and I hate it so much. One, because it's manual labor. But the other reason and more reason why I hate it is because I know that I'm just going to have to do it again. I'm not actually solving a real problem. I'm just temporarily making my yard look nicer. 
there will be a short period of time when they come back again and I'm just going to have to repeat the same process year after year after year after year. It's not a real solution. It's a temporary cleaning of sorts. And so it makes it feel empty. It makes the yard work feel tiresome and burdensome because I'm not actually solving a problem. And this is what the Old Testament system of sacrifice was like. So before Jesus came, before the new covenant, there was the old covenant, right? It was the Mosaic law, the old covenant. The people of God were required to offer up sacrifices to deal with the problem of sin, right? So the Old Testament taught that sin had to be paid for by the shedding of blood. So animals were slaughtered and then sacrificed, and it was different types of sacrifices for different reasons, different times of the year. Some were annual, some were daily, uh, some dependent on, on, your, on how much money you had. If you were poor, you could sacrifice this. If you were rich, you had to, it was just an elaborate system of sacrifice. And what it allowed was people to stay as functioning members in their Jewish society. It temporarily appeased the wrath of God, but it never solved the sin problem. Therefore, they had to do it again and again and again and again. It was endless. It was the vicious cycle, right? People sin. Sin had to be paid for for our sacrifice. So therefore they sacrificed something. But it didn't solve the sin problem. So they sinned again. And around and around and around it goes. And it was endless. Until the one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we sang about in the songs this morning. And today, not only do we want to sing about it, I want to talk about that, about how Jesus' sacrifice, that one sacrifice changed everything. It was the only one that truly solved the problem. It was the only one that was actually the solution. The only one that had the power of permanence, of finality. See, Jesus' sacrifice, it broke the vicious cycle and it brought actual forgiveness of sins, actual transformation of the human heart. And Jesus' sacrifices, sacrifice, not plural, meant no sacrifice would ever have to be offered again. And so the writer of Hebrews will talk about that in chapter 10. And we'll read that passage together here. Starting from verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason... It can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So first he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first covenant he's talking about to establish the second, the new covenant. And by that will, we have been made holy 
through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus in parentheses, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these sins or where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our passage is a comparison, as I mentioned, of the old way of life, old covenant, new way. In other words, life before Good Friday and Easter, life after the work of Christ, Good Friday, Easter, and beyond. So specifically, the author of Hebrews is emphasizing how amazing the sacrifice of Jesus was, how powerful it is for their lives, how it was the only thing that solved the problem of sin, and how life is, for obvious reasons, way, way better with him now that Jesus has come and done his work. Have you ever tried to convince someone in your family that a new way of doing something is, is way better, their life is going to be easier, but it's met with resistance because they're stuck in the old way, they'd rather do the old way? I remember when I was teaching my dad how to transfer money through his phone, like Venmo, Bank of America, Zelle, whatever, I'm like, Dad, this is going to make our lives so much better. All you do is click, click, and then poof, it's gone. He's like, no, 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 I'll write you a check, I'll write you a check. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. He's like, no, it's better. I'm like, no, it's not better. It's way safer, more convenient. You don't have to go to the post office and buy a stamp and mail it. He's like, no, 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 no I'll buy you. I'll buy, I mean, I'm going to send you a check. I'm going to send you a check. So every year he would call, Dan. People call me Dan in my family. That's his accent. Dan, did you get the check? Or he would say it in Korean. Like, no, I didn't get it. Use your phone. Like, no, 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 no. Okay. He, he hang up on me. He doesn't say bye. He just hangs up. Click. And three days later, then, did you get the check? No, I didn't get the check. Just send it. Click. And then until I get it, I'm like, okay, I got the check. Eventually, he finally caved, and now he uses Venmo, which is like, praise God. But he was just so resistant to, this is better. No, it's not better, Dad. This way is infinitely better. It'll make your life better. Now, this example is silly. It's meaningless. It's like not important. But the point being, we, if we multiply that by a thousand, this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. This is a matter of their souls. The problem of sin, like you guys are trying to ease back into the old way. This is not, this is so much better. Let me tell you about the endless burden of your life in the Old Testament, in the old covenant way of life where you have to sacrifice over and over with no solution to your life. Look what Jesus has done. Let me convince you of this new way. The old system, the priest had to do it again and again. And just like weeding, you just do it. It's a temporary cleansing. It's only going to come up again. Temporary. He says in verse 4, we read this. The blood of bulls and goats do not take away sin. It didn't make people right before God. It didn't make them holy. It didn't give them freedom from a guilty conscience. And so you had an endless cycle. But Jesus' sacrifice was different. Completely. 
Let's, let's read this together on the screen again, starting from verse 8. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. So they were obeying, but it just didn't do the whole work. Then he said, this is Jesus speaking, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first, he establishes a second, and by that will, ready, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We are now holy once and for all. Jesus' sacrifice brings true, complete, whole, permanent forgiveness of sins that the temple sacrifices never could. Ever. So if you were here with us two weeks ago, I mentioned that this letter was written to the early church. The, like thousands of years ago, the original Jewish Christians and they were also living under a lot of Roman persecution. They were suffering. And so they were the ones who were like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I think I need to quit on Jesus. I don't, is this worth it? And so this is who is receiving this letter. And so if they're living that life, we're very different. So how does this apply to me? I don't have Caesar like oppressing me right now. I'm not an ethnic Jew. We're thousands of years later. How does this apply? Well, I think it absolutely does in the major way. See, these folks, they were at risk of going back to the life of sacrifices endlessly over and over again. Essentially, not accepting the gift and not living in the true, full forgiveness of sins. And I think we're just as much at risk of that. Or at least in living in that way. We're not offering animal sacrifices anymore. But I think we're just as much at risk of living a life without a clean conscience, without believing in the finality of Jesus' sacrifice for you, we're just as much at risk of not believing that you've been made holy, actually, if you've accepted Christ. We're at risk of not boldly and gladly living in God's presence, believing, you know what? I have been completely and permanently forgiven of my sins. We're all at risk of that. A lot of times we come in with our head kind of low. I don't, I don't think God's happy with me right now. And so my two points that I want to focus on today is freedom. Based on the freedom you have in Christ. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you are completely and wholly forgiven of all your sins. You can stand boldly and gladly in the presence of God. And I believe this passage reminds us of two areas of freedom that I would like to highlight. Firstly, because of the completed work of Christ, we have freedom from striving. Striving. I think all of us know, especially in this demographic, probably know too well, the exhaustion and the exasperation of feeling like you're always striving. And if you stop, something bad is going to happen to you. Some of us, ever since we were little kids, have started that life. And so you know nothing but a life of striving. We, if we stop striving for grades, the best grades, it's going to cost us. My future is not going to lie. I'm going to, everything is going to go, you know, down the toilet. You already have your minimum GPA in mind that you need to get to your next thing and to your next thing. Because, oh, the admissions of the next thing only want this. You already have it in your mind. And so you can't stop. You must strive. Some of us feel that way at work for those who are past school. 
If you don't have the top work performance, it's going to cost you. You're going to lose that promotion. So you can't stop. You better beef up your resume, otherwise you won't stand out amongst the rest. How many, this company is going to get 100 resumes. How am I going to get selected? I got to keep striving. You got to keep going and going. If you stop striving in community amongst friends, you'll be forgotten. Or people won't want to hang out with you. You're going to lose friends. You won't, you won't belong amongst, you won't, you won't be cool and invited. If you stop striving to be attractive, no one's going to want you. Right? That's what we tell ourselves. You're never going to get a romantic partner. You're never going to get married. You better, you know, do this and this to make yourself look nice and beef up your resume of, of, of Hinge or, or, you know, Bumble. If you stop striving to meet the expectations of your parents and ex- turn out exactly the way that they want or force you to, they're not going to love you. They're going to be disappointed in you. I think a lot of us know a life where we're always one bad exam, one bad fight with a friend, one bad date, one missed work deadline, one bad performance review, one bad, you know, test score, one life choice away from something bad going down. It's like every area of our lives we have to prove ourselves, that prove that you're worth dating and marrying, prove that you're worth hiring or promoting Prove that you're worth your friendship material or that you're a good son or a good daughter. That life is so exhausting. And the thing is, it bleeds into our life of faith. I think we carry that striving into our relationship with God. If I'm not striving to be holier, to fix myself up, then God, God's not going to love me He's not going to accept me. Yeah, I, oh, I mean, I guess I've always been told at church that he loves me, so I guess I can't deny that. But, like, will he really? Like, we have that doubt. He, or maybe he's just not going to bless me the way that he might if I were better, of a better Christian. We feel like our relationship with God requires striving and that your relationship with God is fragile. We're just as much at risk as 2,000 years ago. We're just not killing animals because then we'd go to jail and that'd be weird. Here's the good news. That is not the life that Jesus purchased for you. The cross is way bigger than that. What we celebrate on Good Friday and Easter was not just God temporarily having, like, liking you. It's so much bigger. You are free from striving. You don't have to work yourself to the bone. Look at verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands. Let's pay attention to the standing. And performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, now we're changing over to Jesus. When this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat. Standing and working this guy, Jesus sitting and chilling at the right hand of God because he's done. Since that time, he just waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, his ottoman. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Look at this imagery that the writer of Hebrews is building. The priest who's in this Old Testament life is just work, 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 endlessly standing. Jesus did one thing and he sat down at the right hand of God. He's not working anymore. He's at rest. Meaning he's not constantly forgiving you because you keep messing up. He already did that. It's 
done. There's nothing fragile about your relationship with God if you've accepted Christ into your life. It's permanent and unchanging. The gospel gives us freedom from striving. And secondly, because of the completed work of Christ, we have freedom from shame. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then, he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Uh, many years ago, I was driving down to New Jersey early on a Saturday morning uh, for a wedding. My friend had an afternoon wedding, so we left early. My wife was in the passenger seat, friend in the back seat. The three of us were going. And we're just do do do, just chatting. We're about to hit nine or eighty four, and get. And then there's a cop behind me. I'm like, oh, I'm like let me get out of his way. I'm like, and then he followed me. I was like, huh? Let me get out of his way. And I have no more lanes now. And then he followed me again. I'm like, is this dude pulling me over? And he was. And we were like. What just happened? Like, uh, so pull over. I'm like, oh, he's going to say, oh, you're, you know, your license plate is covered or your light is, I don't know. And he'd be like, just letting you know, sir. And he'd walk on and say, thanks, officer. Like, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. That's what we're picturing. It's complete opposite. He's the meanest, angriest, grumpiest dude. He walks up. I've never, I don't know if this is legal, but he didn't let me talk or he didn't even ask me anything. He just, license registration, he took it and he turned on and he walked away. And then he lied he gave me this huge ticket and was like you were going like 20 over the speed limit he, he tossed it at me and he walked away it's like what in the world like so it was a monstrous ticket I would have been like really really bad for my insurance and so I went to court to fight it you know I appeal to appeal I drove two hours west uh you know wore a suit because apparently you got to look nice and I go in and I pled my case to the judge I said I have no idea what happened I wasn't speeding. I know, like, I'm, you don't know me, but I promise I'm not lying. Like, I think it was really unfair. And the judge, to my surprise, he kind of, like, 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 looks down. He's like, hmm. And then he just asked me a few random questions about myself. Like, oh, like, how old are you? Like, what do you do for work? Like, how is this, like, related? Like, what if I'm older? Will you, will you give me a break? <laughs> like, what does this have to do with anything? And then he just said he's going to throw out the ticket. He's like, that was it. I was like, sir, like, you don't have to pay any fines. You don't have to do any paperwork. You don't have to do anything at all. This will be, like, expunged from your record. Like, none of this, there will be no record of this ever happening. Like, have a nice day. I'm like, great, thanks. I got up and walked out. So I walked in. I was nervous. I was scared. My heart was, like, you know, beating out of my chest. I was intimidated. I've never done this before. Like, going to court and stuff like that. I had a little bit of shame. I was like, oh, man, like, what if it goes wrong? What if they don't believe me? And after I was, like, you know, walking, like, my head really high, like, so proud of myself. I won. You know, I'm secure. Without blemish. No record. I've never, never have I ever game at it's small group. I've never got a speeding ticket in my whole life. I've been driving for many years. I had someone with authority and power. The only person actually in my situation with the authority and power over the whole situation of me versus grumpy man. This one singular judge assigned to this, he's the only person. And he was the person, the authority. And he made the decision in my benefit. He gave me a clean slate. I had no record of wrongdoing. There's no record of me ever getting a speeding ticket in my life. 
Listen to this, these words that God says. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, this is the authority saying this. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. There's only one judge. There's only one authority over your judgment for your sin. It's God. And he just said that. He says their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. And it's because of Jesus. Because of the perfect life and obedience of his son. Because of his willing sacrifice and submission to the father. Because the mission of God happened. Because there was a man who walked on earth who was fully man and fully God. Jesus of Nazareth because he gave up his life because of his amazing love that we sang about. And because of his work, your record is clean. You have nothing to be ashamed about. Let's read Romans 10, verse 9. If you've accepted Christ, this is your story. And if you haven't yet accepted Christ, this could be your story just by making a decision of faith. See, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess, profess you are, your faith and are saved. And as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Because of the work of Jesus, because of his loving sacrifice for you and for me, we have freedom from striving. You don't have to anymore in your life. And you have freedom from shame. There's no record of wrongdoing. Clean slate. So fitness has always been a big part of my life. Uh, ever since high school, I've loved like exercise and practicing and training and sports. The vigor of being in the gym uh, for like 20 plus years or so. Um, and, and even to the point where a chunk of that, like a, a number of years, it became part of my life professionally. I spent a number of years personal training, leading small group classes, um, teaching Olympic lifting. Like, and, and I loved it. Or I still, not past tense, I love it, right? Uh, and, and, and the reason why is not just for the exercise, right? Um, that's certainly a huge benefit. But when I'm really loving my relationship with like fitness, gym going, exercise, that kind of stuff, it's because of so many things that I love. Like I love the physical benefits, of course, but I also love the community that I build, having good workout buddies. I've met some of my really close friends through the gym and becoming gym buddies. I love being goal-oriented. It helps me press forward. I love trying new things and experimenting with things that I'm bad at and wondering, oh, maybe one day I can be good at it and practicing. I love healthy routines. I love the, being in a different environment. Uh, like even, even uh, as, a, as a pastor, like, you know, by, by my role, I'm, I'm always surrounded by Christians, but now I, I get to be like amongst non-believers and people of different faiths. I love that part. I love that it gives me more energy throughout the day. I need, need less coffee. I love that it's good. It's like therapy for me. It's good stress relief and good for my mental health. When I'm loving the gym, it's like, oh, I have all these reasons to love it. 
But there are plenty of seasons where I get none of those benefits. And most, of, most people who know me or are close to me think that I'm always obsessed. Sometimes I hate the gym too. And, and, and the reason why, and, and you know, I have that love-hate relationship with it too. And when I hate it, I've been, I was reflecting on like, what are the seasons that I hate it? When I hate it is when instead of being super excited and eager and achieving goals, I'm guilty because I haven't gone in three days. Oh, like, or I'm just guilty that I'm not like doing better. I skipped too much. When I hate it is when, I, when it's, it's shameful because uh, I'm getting older. And I'm starting to feel things that I never felt before. I'm like, why does my knee feel funny? Like that's never happened. I hate it when I'm extra competitive with myself. Because I used to be able to do this. Now I can't anymore. I hate it when I don't meet my own expectations and it triggers insecurities. I hate it when I'm like looking in the mirror and I'm like, ah, oh, like I don't, I'm not happy about my body composition. I've noticed that there's this clear, clear line. When I'm in my love relationship with the gym, I'm just enjoying the blessing of the body God has given me to be able to run, jump, and play, to throw things. We, I, I played softball yesterday. We just throw this thing at each other, for some, and it's fun for some reason. Like just to be able to enjoy that, to sweat, and to get a big sweat, and to love that, to have fun. Just purely enjoying the blessing. When I'm in a hate relationship, it's clear it's because I'm going there to fix something that's messed up. I'm fixing my body because it should look differently. The ratio of, you know, muscle and fat is off. The, it's wrong. I hate it when I'm there trying to make up for or try to beat my age. Like, oh, well, when you were 25, you used to do this. Like, you can get there again. Just suck it up. I hate the gym when I'm going there to fix problems. You know, I grew up I mean, I'm still small, right, for, like on the scale. When I was growing up, I was so, so stinking small. I was like skin and bones. And the word that I hear in my mind still, like decades later, is scrawny. I don't, I, when, I, when I'm unhealthily going to the gym, I'm not going there to get jacked. I'm going there to not be scrawny because that's the voice I heard when I was a kid. I'm too small. I hate the gym when I'm going to fight that, like, demon. But when I love the gym, I'm just enjoying the blessing as it is, as God has given it to me. I want to encourage all of us here to have the love relationship with your faith life, your relationship with Jesus in all the different ways and shapes and forms that that takes. Like Sunday worship, being in a place like this with other Christians. If you stay after for lunches, things like that, joining a small group, listening to worship on your commute, uh, reading the Bible, like doing any sort of spiritual discipline like fasting or solitude or prayer, all these different expressions, when it's because you're enjoying the blessing of it. You're receiving the benefit of what God has given you as a gift as opposed to turning it into something of fixing you. No faith is very lasting or fun when we turn it into that, right? We end up having a hate relationship with it. Because this is when we're just on the hamster wheel. 
And we're coming to church and we're coming to church and we're praying and we're praying and we're asking for forgiveness and we're doing all these things. And guess what we're, we're back doing? Animal sacrificing over and over again with no solution from it. But the work of Christ is this permanent, amazing gift that scripture tells you, you don't need any more fixing. He's made you holy and precious in his sight. It says once and for all. So I want to encourage us as a church, friends, if you are in Christ, to live in that freedom. I want to encourage you this week and beyond to challenge your thoughts of striving, to challenge your thoughts of shame, to preach at it. When your own flesh tells you, oh, like God's upset with you, to speak God's like, go back to Hebrews 10. Read it and be like, nope, you're wrong actually. Challenge your thoughts. And then to remember the treasure and gift that you have so that you can lovingly enjoy the blessing. Not living a faith of, what do I have to fix? Let's shed the burdens. Live in the freedom of the forgiveness of sins. And my prayer for all of us, me included, that we can continue to live joyfully and boldly in the blessed life that God has given us. So I'd like to go ahead and uh, invite Andrew and, and Nate. You guys can come up and um, get prepared. And just spend some time in prayer. And instead of giving a prompt, um, I would just like to read just a, a small portion of our passage and allow that to be the material that you either meditate on or reflect on or pray through uh, as the Lord leaves you, leads you. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Let's just spend a short moment in prayer. <clears throat> 